Welcome to the Nonprofit Experience. I'm Sandy Sear, Managing Editor for the Philanthropy Journal. This week, we welcome back Amarachi and Nakaronye. Amarachi sits down with former colleague Beth Ann James to discuss the Harvard Business Review article, Diversity and Authenticity, and what it takes to have courageous conversations that are so necessary in the nonprofit sector. Welcome to the Nonprofit Experience. My name is Amarachi Anakaronye. I am a public health professional, a radio producer, and the podcaster, that being the creator, host, and executive producer of the Fragmented Whole podcast. And today, we are here at WNCU 90.7 FM. Um, some of you may recognize my voice from a previous episode um, this season on the Nonprofit Experience, but I am so pleased to be back. Um, and a major part of my platform is all about dissecting aspects of oneself and one's mind in regards to the fragments of ourselves, but also to how those fragments internally are also reflected in our society. And how do we make sense of those as we're seeking wholeness? That's why I call myself the fragmented whole. So today I am excited to be here with Miss Beth Ann James. Beth Ann, you want to introduce yourself to the listeners? Sure. Thank you for inviting me, Amarachi. I appreciate it. My pleasure. My name is Beth Ann James. I am a lawyer and I am the founder and um, CEO of Gemstone Professional Services Consulting. And we provide all types of consulting services to nonprofits of various sizes, various areas, and um, recently relocated here to North Carolina. So I'm dipping my toe in the North Carolina nonprofit sector pond. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I can definitely go into how we know each other, but... I'll be talking enough. Okay. Beth Ann, how do we know each other? How do we have the pleasure of meeting? Okay, so <laughs> I served as the interim CEO, and um, right about in the middle of my tenure, um, you came into my life, <laughs> and I have not been the same since. It was such a wonderful meeting, and that's what brought me here. And I, I feel the same way. Um, and that's why I'm really excited to have this dialogue with you today. So before we even jump into any kind of questions, I want to provide a basis for listeners about kind of where I'm coming from. This is a special episode, um, a partnership between my podcast, The Fragmented Whole, and the nonprofit experience. So as many of you may or may not know, the nonprofit experience is all about illuminating Nonprofit sectors, the diversity, the strengths, the weaknesses, I mean, how they contribute to our lives um, in so many different facets and ways. Um, and prior to today, um, and in general with the format of the show, we don't have an interview guide. We don't come with really any type of questions. We're just coming on a basis of conversation, open conversation and dialogue. So before we even had this interview today, I had Beth Ann and myself, we, we read an article um, entitled Diversity and Authenticity. It was published in the Harvard Business Review, and it's from the March through April 2018 issue. Um, and just to provide you all a brief background, the, uh, the title again being Diversity and Authenticity, it's all about basically how within predominantly white uh, sectors and institutions, how do we promote true authenticity for minority populations. Now, when I say minority populations, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm from the point of this conversation where I want to come as an entryway, I'm coming from the point of 
racial minorities or racial ethnic minorities. But I want to make sure we also understand that like minorities goes beyond race, race and ethnicity. We can be talking about working moms. We can talk, be talking about physical disabilities, intellectual disabilities, um, older demographics, or as I like to say, more mature demographics, <laughs> <laughs> working in young startups, et cetera, et cetera. And how do we truly promote inclusion? So I don't know, like this conversation and this topic of diversity, authenticity, but specifically promoting belongingness um, in predominantly white sectors has been on my heart a lot because I think it's something, again, I'm really at the beginning of my career, but it's something that never goes away. Mm-hmm. And no matter where, I've spent my 20s up and down the East Coast and I've had the opportunity to travel internationally. But one thing that I continue to kind of see is, particularly in the context of the United States, People are really uncomfortable talking about race. Oh, sure. Really. Mm-hmm. And I think when we think about the the political times that we're in, it, it makes it even more uncomfortable. But race is everywhere. Oh, yeah. And we cannot escape it. <laughs> and now more than ever, we need to talk about it, right? right? And a lot of nonprofit organizations, when we look at the leadership, most are made up of predominantly white people. And at that, white women. Yeah, it really came at an interesting time with you being the interim CEO and you being an African-American woman. And if you identify in another way, you know, please correct me. But it was really interesting having you at the helm, but having you at the helm of a leadership board where you were basically the only black woman, but you were surrounded predominantly by white women. And I'm curious, one, about that, that, that experience for you. Um, and particularly lessons that you can share, particularly for other uh, executives of color within predominantly white institutions. Okay, so let me take you back to my childhood. So I am the product of a minority biracial relationship. So my father was white and my mother was black. My father graduated from the University of Pennsylvania and my mother left school when she was in the fifth grade to sweep factory floors so that her younger siblings could go to school. So I have a parent who was a workhorse, always worked or whatever, valued education, but did not have the opportunity to participate in education. And my father, who had been in the Navy and graduated from the University of Pennsylvania and, you know, had all this tremendous and white, you know, had the privilege and the entitlement of being white and um, had traveled the world and all this stuff. And he and my mother fell in love. How that happens, I have no idea. But um, <laughs> as, right, but I came along. And so I mean, two people who were so um, diametrically opposed, but loved each other um, passionately. And I mean, it was palatable, you know, the affection. And having that, um, being born to that relationship, I was always taught to, if you want something, to seek it without, you know, um, without ceasing. You know, I'll go after what you want. And my father instilled in me that, that you are just as good as everybody else. You are a little brown girl, and but you are just as good as everybody else. And you stand up, you look people in the eyes, and, you know, you make sure that you are prepared and you present and you arrive. You be your, your authentic self. And so that's something that was poured, poured into me all of my life. And so I think that we see in fast forward to today in the nonprofit sector is that you see that people tend to kind of 
be whatever people want them to be. You know, they always don't present as their authentic self. And it's not always a safe space. And the article speaks about that, about being a safe space to present your authentic self. Is that I have had the benefit of not being forced to be unemployed, you know, in my, in knowing that, you know, I'm smart. I can get another job and do something else. People don't always feel that confident. And so sometimes you accept things that you would not otherwise accept. You're uncomfortable in situations, but you never express your discomfort. Um, We talked about having, you know, before we've had conversations about having courageous conversations. And I am a, you know, an advocate for having those courageous conversations about, you know, whatever the elephant is in the room, let's talk about what that thing is. But it's also about, you know, you understanding yourself, having a true relationship with yourself, understanding who you are and who you're willing to be. In for this opportunity or who you're willing to be, who you're not willing to be, what you're willing to accept, what you're not willing to accept. You know, I can remember a story that, you know, I would go out with my dad and um, I would see my friends and I would say, hey, how you doing? And he would say, why do you speak in that high pitched tone? Why do you change your voice? when you are engaging with people. I'm like, because I want to sound excited and I want them to be engaged. He's like, well, if they're not engaged with you presenting, you know, your voice the way that it is, then, you know, why do you have to change your voice? And I remember that as why do I have to change Mm. in order to make other people feel comfortable? Mm. And, you know, as you get older, you, you know, gain some life experience or whatever is that you become more, hopefully we become more bonded to ourselves. And that we don't, we're less willing to change to make other people feel comfortable. But we are willing to have those conversations to ease their discomfort. Right. Um, so, you know, I think that it's, it's about, it really starts with us. You know, it starts with the individual being comfortable with whom they are and being prepared. And I think that we also see that, you know, most of the nonprofit sector is white women. I worked at organizations where I became the first African-American CEO or ED or whatever, and being told that the charity was white women's charity. It was, a, it was established as a white woman's charity. But think about, you know, the span of, you know, doing social service, doing the social good, is that very rarely do nonprofits well nonprofits do not pay at the corporate rate right so <laughs> yeah. you're you know you're already taking a hit there right so who can really afford to work in a nonprofit you know yeah. typically white women with affluent or you know high paying husbands with high paying jobs and so mm-hmm. you can afford to go and work in a nonprofit it you know it is the work that you're you're able to do that you know kind of comforts your heart but it is because you have the privilege in the in the opportunity to do that. Everybody doesn't. And for African-Americans, I think, you know, like you and I who go to school and we're well-educated and we have student loans and, you know, you, you need to make an income. It's not always an opportunity that we can um, go into because we have, you know, we need a high salary. We need to make money. Yeah. It's just that I am, you know, into my late 40s where I realize that there are three things at this point in my life that I have got to have in, you know, my next adventure. And it's got to be that I don't want to learn anything new. Like, I don't want to become a doctor now. You know, I'm a, you know, I'm working in nonprofits primarily with, in youth development. You know, I want to stay in that area. You know, I want to have work-life balance, which is not always something that happens in the nonprofit area. We work like dogs. We work all the time. Yeah. Um, we don't get any extra money. And the third thing is that, you know, I want to be paid well. And, you know, and I have worked hard. I have um, 
studied, I have gone to school, I have perfected, I have sharpened my saw. I want to be paid for, you know, what I'm worth. Yeah. And so those opportunities in the nonprofit sector are few and far between. Um, and so we don't always have the opportunity. So that's why I think that you see that the nonprofit sector is, is almost primarily, you know, um, white. Right. Um. I mean, I think that sets up a good a good basis for yeah why it is mainly white, and I think it's a this is a nice segue into more of where the article is going and then where where potentially the sector of nonprofits is trying to go or mm-hmm. is already attempting to go. So we see that yeah majority of nonprofits are white. However, there is definitely an influx at least in some of the example and some of my own professional experiences where. Maybe at the executive level, I didn't see a lot of people of color, but definitely in the in the level of like direct service, if not majority of my coworkers have been people of color, specifically women of color. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the example that I'm providing uh, from my own personal experiences, it's interesting where you have a majority organization of color, and then your executive board is that minority, and. Where, again, I'm segueing with the article is how do we then promote a sense of belonging where either the majority, i.e. speaking racially, um, that being, again, I'm going to be very specific when I talk about race because, like, let's call it out. I don't have time for, like, oh, that woman. No, Mm -hmm. that white woman Mm -hmm. or that black woman, whatever. Like, call it out. So what I mean by that, where where the majority becomes a minority, I mean where... White people become the minority due to the organization becoming more people of color. How do we then promote a sense of belongingness and comfortability to where one feels that they can be their authentic self? So I think that what you're driving at, if I understand, is that how can you be your authentic self when the power structure doesn't look like you and doesn't necessarily understand um, or promote um, the inclusion or upward mobility of people who look like you. Is that where you're going? Boom. There you go. Yeah. So my experience is that I was the um, senior most leader, right? I'm the CEO, interim CEO. And my leadership um, team, executive team, is all white women. Um, Those are the people who, that's the power base right there. So how do I, as an African-American, manage that middle to be inclusive and open and accepting of a staff that's primarily um, African-American um, and also willing to promote, include, and push forward or push up a staff that doesn't look like them. You know, it sometimes feels like people are protecting their, you know, the power structure because it protects their salary, their position, their affluence. Because, you know, what I've learned in this journey, too, is that it's not always about the money. Sometimes it's about the appearance of power mm. and um uh, control hmm. is not always, you know, you, if, you know, if I had to look back on lots of examples of people who were keeping a system in play that was not necessarily conducive to the upward mobility of African-American staff, you would not be high paying staff. It would not be those people who are drawing high salaries. It would be people who are also tied to the appearance of power and control of the organization hmm. that, you know, replacing or, grooming you to be my second or grooming you to be my partner to mentor you to take my place or whatever does kind of shift that power dynamic 
because now the person making the decisions doesn't look like me. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's, it's all of those little tentacles that feed out there. But, but I think that it is the responsibility of everyone to make sure that the organization is diverse, that the organization is fair, and the organization is authentic to what it says that it wants to be. Mm. You know, organization can, I, you know, we strive to be diverse and equitable and fair and kind and warm and fuzzy, but are you? And for everyone to, like you said, call it out. Yeah, I don't think that's very fair of us. I don't think that's equitable of us. I don't think that that is promoting the diversity that we say that we are, you know, we aspire to have. Yeah. That's not, but you know, that is one of those courageous conversations that you have to be prepared to have because it's not comfortable. So it's interesting. Um, and again, this goes back to my show, The Fragmented Whole, that the brokenness that we see in ourselves is a lot of times reflected in the society that surrounds us. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we talk about calling things out, whether that be within our jobs, it's also a thing about like our communities and our environments and even calling things out within ourselves when we're, when we're thinking about internal biases mm-hmm. and things that maybe the things that are ugly about ourselves that we may ignore. Um, but something that you, kept, you keep bringing up um, that I, I has really touched my life are these courageous conversations. What do you mean by that? So courageous conversations is um, a term that I stole from Ruby Archie. Ruby Archie was the first African-American mayor of Danville, Virginia, also a soror. Um, I don't know if we told you all this, but we're both members of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. So she, woman, uh, mayor. So she um, would challenge people this was 10, 15 years ago, challenged people to talk about, you know, I'm uncomfortable with you because you're black. Mm-hmm. You know, that I don't know you, but when you come into my space, I am uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I am, but I am. And, you know, if you know anything about Danville, people say that Danville was the last stronghold of the Confederacy. So, you know, it is like long and deep-seated, um, you know, racial troubles in um, Danville, Virginia, but she would just call it out and she would have sessions where she brought people together to have courageous conversations is that we're just going to be bold in this conversation and, you know, you're not going to be harmed. You, you know, hopefully you'll learn, but you're not going to be harmed in this room and I'm not going to be harmed, but we're going to leave knowing a little bit more about each other. And um, so that's why I coined the term, you know, I stole it from her, but it is about really having conversations and also a blend of something my mom taught me a long time ago is that you can talk to anybody about anything. It's the way. It's the way that you talk to them about it. So you you understand that people are uncomfortable, so you don't seek to aggravate that um, discomfort. You know, you seek to ease that discomfort, to have a conversation where, you know, they can talk to you and you can talk to them. And it may not be a conversation that of things that you want to hear because sometimes it may not be about what you think it is. Mm. But unless you have the conversation, you would never know. Right. So I'm curious. I mean, I'm sure there are a number of ways, but I'm curious, like, how does one go about facilitating a courageous conversation? So I think that um, the way that I do, and like you said, there are probably many ways to go about having courageous conversations, is, you know, I always like to, and maybe this is the, the, the lawyer in me, that <laughs> requires that I understand as much of the facts as possible. You know, what um, appears to be true in that moment. Now, it may not be true, but what, you know, as close to, as far away from someone's opinion and as close to what appears to be true as possible. Gather that information. And 
extract the emotion from the situation because the emotion just makes it a hot bed for a whole nother go a whole nother way but to have a conversation with someone about um whatever i feel like is the elephant in the room that you know something happened between us that i don't understand but i want to understand it and this is what from my perspective this is what happened and i'd like to talk to you about it but you know it is about positioning yourself um from in the stance of inquiry like I do want to know why we had that interaction or I want to own my part of whatever is keeping us from connecting and you know let me tell you what I understand mm-hmm. this you know, this is you know what I'd like to know and trying to bridge that gap you know where, where's the confusion where's the breakdown between us you know this thing happened but why did it happen you know how can we get past it and you'll have conversations like this where people don't want to get past it no you know, this is what I understand is what I believe is true. This is this and whatever. And, you know, and those things happen. But I'd like to believe that those are less often that, you know, when you come to someone and you truly are approaching it from a position of wanting to reach understanding and resolution, I think that people will be open to that. I want to I want to believe that that is the case. I want to believe that, too. Um, it's funny. As you were saying that, I was thinking like within a work environment. But then again, like thinking again on like a higher level of the macro level, like the state of our country, where we're so polarized, particularly by politics, right? Where people are like, this is my ideological view, and if you don't see it this way, you're a bad person. And again, this is my assessment. Others may feel different. When it comes to courageous conversations, right? These are these are beautiful moments where we find understanding with with each other, whether we see the same way mm-hmm. or we don't see the same way. Or often find something about ourselves in the yeah. conversation. We learn something about ourselves. Yeah. However, I guess where my pushback with courageous conversations come is, and again, this may be even taken away from the point of it, but it's just a thought that popped into my head about sometimes like. Again, I can only speak from my experiences and my perspective as a minority mm-hmm. woman with, like, always to an extent, and again, as I'm getting older, it's something I'm really fighting to kind of stop, to an extent always having to prove my worth and my value of why I matter. And with whatever I do, I got to be the best. Like, to get half of what somebody else gets, I got to be the best. And if I'm not, I'm just, I'm out of luck. But at the same time, like, Sometimes I feel like I don't have to prove my value, though, you know, and I don't have to prove my worth. And some, sometimes when it comes to having these conversations where we're trying to find understanding, particularly when it comes to, like, ideological differences, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. sometimes I do feel a bit of, um, what is the word that I'm, I'm trying to think of, a bit of frustration, mm-hmm. a bit of gradiness within myself, because it's kind of like another thing of where, like, I got to take the onus of trying to find understanding. Like, why does it have to be me? Like, why can't you just understand? Well, I challenge you to do this. Reframe the thought in your head is that maybe you're not trying to, you're not taking the onus to prove yourself. Maybe you're taking this opportunity to educate somebody else. You know, just change the way you think about it is that it's a conversation, but I'm having this conversation to educate you. Mm. Is not that, you know, I am having this conversation to defend my space in the building, to defend my worth, to prove to you that I'm good enough, because you know that. You know that you're good enough. You know that you deserve to be there. You know all these things about you. What you are doing is you are sharing with somebody else the opportunity to get to know you. Mm. And that's, you know, that's, is, you know, my point of view is that I'm giving you an opportunity, an opportunity to know me. 
And if you want to know me, we can have this conversation. If you don't, that's okay too. But this is your opportunity. I know that I'm good enough. Mm. You know, and I challenge you to think about it in a different way, Amarachi. Think about it as an opportunity for somebody else. I can sit with that. Yeah, <laughs> I can sit with that. I mean, again, it's something that I'm, I'm, I'm evolving into with every experience. and mm-hmm. But I, I could definitely... It's all about reframing and yeah. the perspective. Yeah, because otherwise we spend the time thinking about, you know, how... And, and it's something I think that that we are taught to as African Americans is that we gotta work extra hard. You know, we gotta be, you know, extra smart. We, you know, we gotta do more to get half as much, right? That, mm-hmm. I mean, that's nothing new. That's something that we've heard for years. Is that you gotta work twice as hard to get half as much? Mm-hmm. Is that you know? And I don't know that that's so true anymore. Yeah. But I think that it still is part of our. Um, fabric fabric of you know who we are as black people right but i think that you know you get to a place where you are you know you you can stand with who you are you know i i did all that i could do you know i am as good you know i am as good as needs to be to for this opportunity you know i am present and attending i am seeking to do my best and i am here and you know and we have the conversation from that point of view it will take a long time for us as black people to, because of the multiple experiences and the things that still happen even today, to make sure that, you know, we are fighting and defending our place, our space in the building. But, you know, I just want, we are good enough, you know, and if you've done what you need to do, you have, you've got the education, you've got the experience, you've got the whatever, is that, you know, that we are able to be accepting of ourselves. Hmm. Yeah. We are our worst critics, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I love that, that we are accepting of ourselves. But because you know that we can be, you know, we there are times where we've not done everything we need to do, but mm. we've done some of this stuff, and we're like, oh, we're going to try to let, you know, slide. Yeah. But if you have truly done what you need to do, you are present and attending, which is important to be show up and be attending, that, you know, you are good enough. Yeah, yeah. And with that, I, I think that is probably the most beautiful place to conclude. And um, I really, really appreciate you Beth Ann, um, for coming out today again to our studios, WNCU 90.7 FM Jazz, um, to just have this conversation with me. Any final notes that you want to leave on? No, I think I agree with you. That's a great place to, to end is that, you know, be accepting of ourselves, but, you know, um, also be honest. When we, when we don't show up, let us not, let us not make the same mistake twice. So if you don't show up one time, don't not show up twice, you mm. know. Call, you know, you talked about calling us on our stuff is, you know, be a person who can call your, you on your stuff, you know, to call ourselves out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a good balance, too, between, like, calling yourself out, but at the same time being kind to yourself, to yes. really being accepting of yourself yes. as well. Yep. Yeah. Except that our best is our best, but when it's not our best, to say we could have done better. Mm. Mm. That's fair. Well, thank you, Bethany. I appreciate Thanks, you. Amarachi. I adore you. <laughs> and I'm thankful to call you my soror um, colleague and friend. So thank you. Thank you. Um, you all have tuned in to the nonprofit experience, um, a, a special collaboration in this episode with The Fragmented Whole. Again, my name is Amarachi. It's been a pleasure, and I'm out. Thank you for listening to the nonprofit experience. If you like what you hear, please support our work. 
rate us on iTunes, share us with a friend, and donate to the project at go.ncsu.edu forward slash give to PJ. TNE is a project of the Philanthropy Journal. Our managing editor is Sandy Sear. Our graduate editor is Kristen Gollihue, and our graduate assistant editor is Preston Whitworth. This episode was produced by Amarachi and Akaronye. Amarachi is the host and executive producer of the Fragmented Whole podcast. To learn more, visit amarachia.com. That's A-M-A-R-A-C-H-I-A.com. Our theme music is an original score by David Mueller. For more information on this and other episodes, visit us at www.philanthropyjournal.org. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at The Nonprofit Experience and subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Play. Thank you.